All right, good morning, everybody. Hear all the birds? It is warmer than it should be on this November morning. It's a little bit rainy, a little bit humid, but certainly warmish. And uh, yeah, my name's Mike, and you are joining me on my way to work. This is Driving Theology podcast where I ramble on about things vaguely philosophical and theological uh, and hopefully get to some place that's kind of interesting. It's uh, (laughs) literally a journey. It's a journey because I have to drive about 40 minutes and it's a journey because it's it's a thought journey. Uh, so we are on the first week of Advent. Last week was Thanksgiving, and, and we had the last Sunday of December, and so we are in Advent. So uh, I've been reading, oh man, I'm going to forget the title now, uh, Brian Zahn's Advent book for the first time. Uh, I've been kind of wanting to read it for a while, and I think I always forget too late and try to start it too late. I did start it. A few days late uh, this time, but anyway, he's got a, a daily Advent devotional book. Um, and that makes it sound a little trite as I say that, I realize it. But if you know Brian Zahn, you know that it's going to be incredibly deep, well thought out, uh, and profound. And that's how that's how I, I've always found Brian Zahn, and on top of that, passionate, incredibly passionate person. Uh, anyway, so yeah, I started that, and uh, it's been really great. I I need to go back and read it. I think I've read them a little too quickly, and, and what Brian says is we shouldn't read them too quickly. We should really take our time with them, meditate when we can, but, you know, he understands, and I think everybody understands that sometimes you just don't have the time. Uh, and, yeah... I wish I would have taken the time this morning to do that a little bit more carefully. But anyway, be that as it may, we are in Advent. uh, I want to say usually the first week of Advent uh, is is, uh, basically revolves around hope. Hope, joy, peace, love, maybe. Hope, joy, peace, hope, joy, peace, faith, love different ways to think about it, but anyway, um, yeah, I'm having a hard time kind of getting into Christmas this year, um, I wasn't with any of my daughters for Thanksgiving for the first time, they were all together, uh, but not here with us, they were, they're all in America right now, uh, so maybe that takes a little bit of it off, but we did have a lovely uh, Thanksgiving gathering. We had about 30 people in our house, including us, uh, which is about a little less than half our record. <laughs> but it was a good time. It was a, it's a really good number, actually, uh, to where you can kind of spend a little time with everybody. And, and uh, it basically went from noon or one, we had people in the house by 11, 30, 12 for sure, 
uh, all the way till about almost 10 p.m. that night. Um, we did a lot of various things. Mostly we talked and we ate and we drank a little bit. Uh, we played some chess. We watched the sunset. Uh, the kids played outside because, as I was saying, it's unseasonably warm this year. And uh, we danced. <laughs> we had a had a, uh, uh, a sudden dance party that was awesome. Uh, and then we also uh, watched a soccer game. So the World Cup is on, and Japan was playing that night. So we, a lot of us, watched the soccer game as well. So it was a really, really good day, a good evening. And. In the process, they threw me a birthday party. My birthday is always right around Thanksgiving. Um, this year, we, we celebrated Thanksgiving on the 27th, on the Sunday afternoon, um, and my birthday was the day before. Um, sometimes it actually falls on Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving Day, which is you know the fourth Thursday of the month. But anyway, that was great. Uh, I got some cake and got sang happy birthday too, and also had a got a really cool present. So if you've been following me recently at all, you know, I've kind of been into jazz lately. Uh, and by kind, I mean, that's pretty much all I listen to, um, when I have, when it's up to me. Uh, and I've been mostly listening to jazz more, right? Really trying to get into it. And I'm discovering the you know, the different uh, historical uh, eras of jazz. Um, right now, I'm kind of leaning into bebop a little bit. Bebop was from the late 40s on. I'm sure it kind of continues today, but it, it was an era in jazz where it became less about dance and more about the music itself, the music and the improvisation techniques uh, of the band. And, what it means that it was less about dance, and so big band, um, the big band era, uh, you know, um, what are the names? Who are the big big band people? Um, Glenn Miller, Glenn, I think Glenn Miller's right. Uh, Glenn Miller, and then uh, Woody, Woody Herman. Um, yeah, anyway, there were a lot of big bands, and they were called swing bands or big bands, and it was all about dance. And so the rhythm had to be consistent, and the whole purpose of the of the music in the band was to get the people up dancing on the dance floor. That, that was what the, the music was kind of created for. It came from the, the roots of blues and jazz, but it really became about dance, and, and the rhythms, you know, bear this out. Uh... You know, kind of songs like uh, Pennsylvania, was it Pennsylvania? Something 1000, I can't remember what it is, but anyway, da 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 uh, uh, and interesting music, but there was a movement from that uh, after World War II, and it could have to do with who knows what it has to do with exactly, but it could have something to do with uh, 
you know, coming back home with, with the blues from being involved in war and all of all of the stuff that people saw. But jazz became, now this is just my opinion, jazz became more introspective. Uh, and and I don't mean it in a bad way, but self-indulgent, right? Uh, it, it became about the music uh, and the ethos. Uh, and, and it became this incredibly uh, deep, a little bit dark. Uh, dark's probably the wrong word to say it, um, just to, to describe it. But it, it has this introspection about it, right? This introspection. It's, it's as if the, uh, the musicians are, are bearing their own souls to the audience kind of thing. Um, of course, it has a lot of the elements that the previous eras of jazz contained. But it, it did become a little bit more... Uh, a little bit darker, you know. Um, and of course, I'm talking about uh, people like Thelonious Monk and, and um, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, uh, all of these guys, and and a lot of them, you know, influenced a lot of other musicians who continue to this day. Um, but it was an era that that became very introspective and so a lot of the a lot of the music is quite slow and, and plodding and a lot of it's not right there's there's a there's a variety um, but jazz became a little bit more serious and I think it's this kind of jazz that we we talk about when we talk about uh, that jazz is the classical music of America um, now the the roots of jazz, of course, come out of Africa, uh, and and then the African, uh, the slave communities, in America, and that's where we get the blues and the and jazz and and you know, rockabilly, or, which became rock and roll and rock and uh, all of these, all of these things have their their foundation in Africa, right? In Africa, and and in the pain of Africans, in a sense, and that that pain was ha, has been expressed in all kinds of ways. You know, one of the ways that that the pain is expressed is in defiance, right? That even though uh, even though the plight of of our people, I'm, I'm speaking as if I were African American. I know it's a horrible thing to do, but for the purpose of this podcast, I'm going to try. Um, that even though white people have done everything to, to, to keep us down, to keep us in a place of subjugation and, and have oppressed us, we are going to defiantly sing happy music, right? We're, we're going we're gonna to defy that. We're going to defy the powers that be by, by being joyous anyway. And that there's still pain in that. Right there's there's still a lot of pain and th- this kind of music I would say uh, is what I saw in in Louis Armstrong's music. Uh, his he he was an incredibly joyous person, but he wasn't oblivious to what was happening. Uh, but I think we could we could see 
what he did and maybe people like Ella Fitzgerald uh, as well and Sarah Vaughn and and uh, maybe even uh, Nat, uh, Nat King Cole uh, a lot of these African American singers uh, through the, the 50s, 40s, 50s and 60s who who sang a lot of happy, joyous, romantic, beautiful music uh, that was a way that they were defying the powers that be, right? There's a, there's a way that, that, that's a way that they may have been protesting, if that makes sense. Now, of course, the other way to protest, or another way to protest, I'm sure there's more than two, uh, is, you know, things like violence and, and riots and um, outrage, uh, rebellion, right? Uh, resistance. And those are also normal and legitimate ways to defy. Uh, I guess I'm saying that different eras chose different ways. And I think there's probably another, some other aspects in why jazz changed. Um, the other thing is uh, the racism of the time. I don't think people really wanted to see racists didn't want to see black people on stage. And so a lot of white people probably who were just very interested in the music and, and taken back by the beauty of the music uh, started taking over. So you, you get the band, the big band era. A lot of those famous big bands were mostly white musicians and they were playing African music or African-American music. Uh, and, and the big band era, I think, by all intents and purposes, was taken over by white America and co-opted uh, or, or appropriated, we also say, right? Cultural appropriation. And so, um, <clears throat> and so I think the African musicians, the African-American musicians who are to, continuing in jazz kind of went a different way like well we're gonna we're gonna go off our own way we're gonna we're gonna do something different you know right, right unique uh, we're gonna we're gonna go deeper with what we've been doing here and leave you white people to your dance music and I'm not sure that's how it happened I am not a jazz historian <laughs> I know very little I am a novice I'm just kind of guessing uh, and I could see I could see that as being a valid response as well, you know. Um, the the essence of corporate, uh, cultural appro appropriation, is that even the right word? Anyway, uh, the essence is that people do things not knowing why they're done, right? Uh, from, from the wrong motivations or from the wrong... Uh, place of knowledge or what have you, right? I see it all the time in Japan. Um, you know, Japanese people celebrating Christmas. When I first came to Japan, you know, Christmas was kind of a thing. Everybody knew what it was, but really it was about two things. It, it was about dating, right? 
to have a Christmas date uh, was a big deal, right? It's a big date date night, still is. And the other part was that uh, you know kids got a present, right? Kids got a present. That that's what they appropriated from Christmas, but they knew nothing about the Jesus of Christmas, right? The story of Christmas, the the, the pain and tragedy. Uh, the context in which the Christmas story began, right? They, they don't know uh, any of the deeper meaning of Christmas. So they've just taken, you know, this and that and just, you know, monetized it. Um, what's the other word for that? Anyway, uh, and whatever, we all do that, right? We all do that. I think uh, Americans do that as bad as anyone does. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I can remember wearing or, or buying and being really interested in these bandanas with Japanese flags on them, right? And some of them were the Japanese World War II flag in retrospect. Now that I think of it, I didn't really think of it then, but I've been in Japan now for nearly 30 years and I kind of, uh, <laughs> I kind of know more than I used to know, I suppose. But, you know, I, I did it as a kid when I was playing ninjas and, you know, not at all realizing the, you know, the tragic history of, of a lot of the ninja clans in Japan and the, uh, the, uh, the reason that they had to become ninjas and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so cultural misappropriation or cultural appropriation is normal for the world today. Like, it's everybody's doing it because we have more information than ever, right? We're, we're, we are exposed to so many things on YouTube and the internet and TikTok and, you know, Instagram and Pinterest, right? There's another place where you see just pictures of stuff and you get very little context, but you're like, Hey, I want to try that. Yeah, that looks like fun. I'm going to do that. Um, and to tell you the truth, that's kind of where I am with jazz right now. Uh, I am Caucasian, right? I am white American. I've always been interested in jazz since I knew really what it was. Um, and I've been in awe of jazz musicians and not a little bit jealous uh, of their ability to improvise. Uh, and and here I am, you know, trying to get a, a little jazz together um, so, yeah, um, it's, yeah, uh, that, that's where I am, I am, right, I'm, now hopefully I'm trying to get in more deeply, right, to really understand what's going on and to, give credit where credit is due uh, and and uh, not just take something for my own benefit um, and I gotta tell you jazz music is some of the most beautiful and interesting music you will ever find the, just from a musical standpoint the, the rhythms and the, and the chord progressions uh, some, some, some of it just unbelievably beautiful um I ran into a, a rendition of Silent Night, so I'm getting a, 
jazz jazz Christmas concert kind of together right now, and I ran into a rendition of Silent Night that was just unbelievably beautiful. You know, just wonderful. Uh, that's a standard, you know, like jazz musicians probably have played this all over the world all the time, and they do it every year probably during Christmas, but just beautiful. Uh, the progressions are just amazing. Uh, man, I don't know where I was going with all this today. I started talking about Advent, and I went into jazz, and I just went down a deep, deep rabbit hole. Uh, well, I'm trying to go down a deep rabbit hole, but I'm still toward the surface, just scratching the surface. Uh, yeah, so cultures were classing in, uh, clashing, classing, cultures were clashing in Judea, uh, around the time Jesus was born. Um, and there are things that, that in the gospels kind of bear this out, um, things with, you know, soldiers and, uh, with Pilate and, and you can see that Judea, uh, being under the rule of a, a foreign, uh, dictator, um, is struggling, right? They're struggling to be understood and to accept Roman ways, right? They want to be understood by Rome. They want to be allowed to still be <clears throat> Jewish, in a sense, or Hebrew or Is Israeli or whatever you want to call it, in a sense, but at the same time, you know, Rome needs things to be done a certain way and they have very little patience for the idiosyncrasies, the cultural idiosyncrasies of the Jews. Uh, and so there's, there's, there are cultures clashing here. Um, there's this constant uh, tension uh, between uh, the two cultures. Uh, and we see this in the prosecution of Jesus um, before the cross. But the reason, I think, I think that the, the reason the timing was good for Jesus to come to earth at that time is also interesting. I think, you know, Jesus needed to be nurtured. He needed to be raised as safely as possible. And we know, uh, at least according to the Gospels, that that was easier said than done. You know, Jesus and his family had to escape to Egypt. Um, in order to avoid persecution, um, because Herod, King Herod, was onto them and uh, killed lots of babies, trying and hoping at least to kill the Messiah. Oh, sorry, I got some coffee. I really need to work on. Oh, it's not a bad americano. <clears throat> um, yeah, so. So, so Advent begins not with the birth of Jesus, but actually with the, the people crying out for a Messiah. You see, the people of Israel from about four or five hundred years before Jesus, uh, for quite some time, were under various uh, empires, foreign empires, under the rule of foreign empires. And they were uh, both... Uh, exiled and they came back uh, 
and and some some of the people of Israel never came back. That we talk about the the lost ten tribes of Israel. It appears that ten of the twelve tribes were scattered to the winds, and that only remnants of the, of they <coughs> only their remnants survived in the other two tribes. You know, because of intermarriage and because of the priest class and all kinds of stuff. But uh, ten tribes seem to have been lost, at least people who lived in the area where the ten tribes lived. Uh, and and only the tribe of, of Judah and Benjamin and the Levites who lived among them, amongst them survived uh, and were brought back to Jerusalem. Right? There were, I think there were always a few that stayed, but... Jerusalem was in ruins and tatters. Right? It was, it was beaten down. It was broken in the time of, uh, let's see, it's in Jeremiah. I don't remember anyway. I think it was Jeremiah who came and rebuilt the walls. Uh, but I could be wrong. So the people who had who had come out of a, a belief that they were the chosen people of the Almighty God and yet had fallen into the hands of quote-unquote evil uh, rulers, rulers of their evil rulers of their own and in evil foreign rulers as well, uh, were calling out for salvation. They wanted to be saved. They wanted to be reestablished as a sovereign nation. And so from this we, we get the idea of, of uh, the idea that God is going to one day come back and save his people. And he will send them a Messiah, a Savior, right? Someone who is going to put everything to rights, right? Somebody who's going to uh, make the crooked path straight someone who will rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, somebody who will restore the worship at the temple. <coughs> Excuse me. And so this was a this was a constant hope and call and wish uh, of the people. Uh, and the prophets who wrote during the time bear this out, uh, especially Isaiah, uh, but really uh, all over all over the uh, the prophets really all over the Old Testament, even in the Psalms as well, there are places that have been found uh, that are that people read as pertaining to the coming of the Messiah. And later, when the Messiah did come, uh, in the person of Jesus, they looked back and found these verses and realized that these verses pertain to Jesus. Or they associated, you know, they may have just freely associated those scriptures with Jesus. But uh, anywho, that, that's a bit of a, uh, a debate on exactly what prophecy is. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there, there, there was a big uh, call, a big cry for the Messiah to come and save them and, and to reestablish 
the capital, Jerusalem, and the temple, uh, and the uh, line of David, right, to put a, a, a descendant of David on the throne. And so this is, this is the time that Jesus is born when perhaps the call is greatest because Rome, uh, the greatest empire ever known to man up to that point, uh, also had its thumb uh, on Jerusalem and on the temple and on the people of Israel. Uh, and so Jesus is born into this, uh, into this context, uh, into this this land that is speaks uh, speaks what both Hebrew, uh, Latin, Greek, Aramaic. Right, it's a multicultural uh, part of the world because of all these empires and various empires that that had conquered it at various times, and all these languages persisted. Right, it was a, it was a multilingual uh, experience to live in uh, Judea, multicultural, multilingual. Now, the, of course, the prevalent culture would would have been the Jewish culture. And, and the worship of the Jews. But even by that time, the worship was not as it once was because the Ark of the Covenant is gone, right? The, the Ark, one of the, central, one of the central pieces of worship that belongs in a certain part of the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, the seat of God himself, uh, the, the, the box that contains... Uh, the manna and the law and the the staff of Moses Uh, could have been the staff of Aaron remember why I said the staff of Moses but anyway they were pretty much the same Uh, had been taken during one of these sieges of Jerusalem and no longer existed it was gone right it had been it had been taken and so the worship that was being performed was a little watered down. It wasn't even the original temple. The temple had been destroyed once before, and this was a rebuilt temple. Um, and it wasn't quite as lustrious as it, as it once had been, right? It wasn't as wealthy or rich as it once had been. And so, anyway, um, this is Advent, right? Now, taking this to today, I don't see that people have changed all that much. I think there's still this cry, this natural uh, calling out in every person for the wrongs to be righted, for injustice uh, to be halted, right? for restitution to be made. There's still a lot of injustice in the world. Still a lot of oppression. All kinds of oppression, really. And so I think there's still this... there's, There's still this need that mankind has for a savior and for salvation. This is maybe what it means to be human, right? To always look for look for help to look for a way out to look for salvation to 
always hope for um, deliverance, right? Uh, I think I think Advent, right? The the anticipation of the coming of Christ is just as important today as it's ever been. You know, to hope, and when we lose when we lose hope, when we stop hoping, uh, this is when we. We are at our worst, right? It's one thing to hope for something that never comes. It's another thing not to hope for anything to ever get better. Uh, because I think that's that's a definition of despair, right? To give up. To give up on anything ever getting better. Now, I don't mean to say, and this kind of goes into the podcast last week, I don't mean to say that people can't can't help deliver one another. In fact, I, I think I think that's the next theological evolution is to realize that that people all along have been the hands of God and and God has been trying to encourage us to use them to help one another all this time. And so perhaps the next theological evolution is to realize just how much responsibility and, and ability, right? Uh, responsibility and, and ability we have in our own possession, in our control to make the world a better place, right? To, to be the salvation for others that we wish for ourselves. Be the salvation for others that you wish for yourself. You know, that's the, that's the essence of the golden rule that Jesus taught and that was taught for years. Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know, be the be the thing for someone else that you want for yourself. Right? Do that. Be that. <clears throat> hmm. uh, I think if people who follow Jesus, and I'm, I'm going to expand that a little bit because I think they're. I believe there are people who follow Jesus that don't even know they follow Jesus. I would say people who who are in pain because of the plight of others, who who are empathetic, who are trying to find ways to help others. Uh, I think as soon as we realize we can do that, right? That that's something that is in our ability. It's in in the scope of being human, right? It's uh, it's it's totally doable for us to uh, alleviate the pain of others. <clears throat> it's in our it's within our power. Um, as soon as we do that, on mass, uh, I think we will see the salvation of the Lord. You know, maybe that's what Jesus was doing all along. He was he was taking. Uh, he came and he he took the desire of his disciples for salvation and instilled within them the very means to bring salvation. Maybe that was the point of spending so much time with those 
that small group of people. Salvation is not out there. It's not something that comes to you. Salvation is something that you deliver. And so Jesus's part of Jesus's mission was to show that salvation was in each each and every one of us. Maybe that's part of why the Bible is so adamant on letting us know that we are made in the image of God. We think that God needs to save us, but we are made in his image and we have a part of him in us and that part of him in us is the very power of the gospel. It's the very ability of the gospel to bring salvation to the world. This is the story of the sheep and the goats. Is it not? You know, says, you know, as he say, go away from me, you workers of iniquity, right? Because uh, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. And they say, when did we see you? When did we... When did we ever see you hungry, naked, in prison? And he says, If you didn't do this to the least of these, right, the people who needed it the most, the people in the worst shape, in the worst danger, the people who were in the most need, you didn't do it to me. And I think that's, oh wow, yeah. I don't know, did I just hit something profound or is that just too um, obvious? I almost said it in Japanese. To atarimae. I'm going to leave it there. Uh, That's going to be my Advent, my first week uh, Advent um, podcast. And I pray that you guys will have a good Advent. Um, I do recommend this Advent book by Brian Zond. I just can't remember the title. So maybe somebody can help me with that. Uh, But I can look it up. I could look it up now if I weren't driving. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye-bye.